Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So guys, I'm, uh, I'm pleased to report that after a year of waiting, my 15-month-old son has finally been microchipped, and I could not be more excited. The nanobots are doing their work. And... Now you can find him by GPS locating <laughs> if he ever runs uh away. Honestly, if I could lowjack my baby, I 100% would. 100%. No I totally agree. 100%. I would, I would do it just for the inside of my house. <laughs> just to be like, <laughs> I, know he's, I know he's not in the three danger zones. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. If like every time he comes up to the stove, there's like a klaxon starts, that'd be really actually very effective. Well, my my uh, 17 month old, of course, got COVID in the week before the vaccines were approved for kids of his age. Brutal. And so when we went to our doctor and asked, you know, should we get the vaccine now? Should we wait? She was like, you got immunity, man. This is YOLO summer. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> and I was like, I almost asked her to put that on a prescription pad so I could carry it with me to say I have official prescription for YOLO summer. I think that's actually what they happening. write when you get a prescription for ivermectin. <laughs> you and the nearest horse. I, exactly. I, I feel. I feel like no. I feel like that should be on like the COVID. You know, like the COVID vaccine card. Like instead of the vaccine, they just write YOLO as your first dose. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, aka Rational Security Pedant Man and the Wasp. I don't know which of those two I am neither. Probably both, if I'm being completely honest. We all know. Everyone knows which one you are. I think everybody knows which one I am. The answer is both of them. But that's okay. Uh, I am, of course, one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I am here with my two other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are thrilled to have you all here joining us here today for what we are calling the Better Than Ever edition, because we are thrilled to have with us none other than New York Times reporter, January 6th committee uh, and Justice Department and a sort of other areas of interest to us reporter extraordinaire, Katie Benner. Katie, thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, thanks for having me. You have been thoroughly sucked like a vortex into the Lawfare podcast universe, and I'm so <laughs> sorry to have done this to you and to be continuing this this line of abuse, but we really appreciate you making the time to join us, uh, especially on what has become a very eventful day, as we're going to talk about in just a minute. Absolutely. It's all Ben Wittes' fault, like everything. Yeah, it usually is. Yeah, it's overdetermined what is Ben Wittes' fault. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, well, we are going to be, as ever, digging through a couple of the big national security stories of, of the week. The first one being something we've already referenced. Um, but topic one for this week is the masked ringer. We are about halfway through the January 6th committee's public hearings. And despite originally planning a week-long pause, the committee is now holding a snap hearing with a surprise witness later today. Although we now know, we think, who the surprise witness is. As Alan will introduce for us in just a minute. Uh, we did not when I wrote these maybe a couple hours ago. What should we make of the hearing so far? And what may we continue to learn in the sessions yet to come? Topic two, trouble a Bruin. 
The Supreme Court has issued a decision concluding that the Second Amendment gives Americans a constitutional right to carry a firearm outside their homes for purposes of self-defense. What does this mean for the future of gun control policies and gun violence? And topic three, Siri as snitch. The end of a constitutional right to abortion has tech experts worried that state authorities will use digital surveillance and data collection to aid in their enforcement of abortion restrictions, including outside their respective states. How real are these risks and what can we do about them? Alan, as always, I'm going to hand it over to you to get us started for our first topic. So I should first say when we are recording this, because the timing actually matters. So we are recording this the morning, the late morning of uh, Tuesday, June 28th. We're actually recording it such that the moment we finish recording this, we will all jump on to watch the uh, this afternoon's specially called January 6th uh, committee hearing. So just to keep in mind, when you listen to this, you will already have potentially listened to the special hearing that we are all waiting to hear. So uh, just to explain what we're going to be talking about. You know, we've talked about the first two of the hearings on the show. Since then, there have been uh, three more. Uh, again, this afternoon, which is for you yesterday uh, afternoon, uh, there's a specially called hearing, which apparently will be starring uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, who is a former aide to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Apparently, uh, she uh, may be talking about juicy things like uh, attempts by various Republican lawmakers to get pardons and all, all sorts of stuff. But we, we will know by the time you hear about what she's going to say. And at this point, in addition to the opening hearing, uh, we've heard the committee talk about Trump's knowledge that he lost the election, Trump's attempt to pressure Vice President Pence in rejecting the certification of the Electoral College vote, the intervention in the Georgia election, and then most recently, the aborted plan to install uh, Jeffrey Clark as the acting attorney general and send various letters to states encouraging them to, uh, to, to send alternate slates of electors and all sorts of other related chicanery. So, Katie, I, I want to start with you. Um, you're a real live reporter, uh, and, and you're the person also who broke the story of Jeff Clark's machinations at DOJ. Um, so I'm really curious, what have you made of these hearings so far? And I'm in particular, have they been effective? And if so, to what end exactly? So the hearings are sort of interesting because so much of the country already had their minds made up about whether or not Donald Trump did something wrong on January 6th. And because so much of what the hearings have surfaced, again, I would describe as material that was already in the public sphere, either because of reporting or because of the very thorough Senate Judiciary investigation into things that were happening at the Justice Department before the election. That said, the hearings have done a couple of things. One, they've taken that information and I think better packaged it and made it more digestible and memorable for the average person, no matter what they think of Donald Trump, which is in and of itself an important service. You know, very few people are going to read through a multi hundreds of pages Senate Judiciary Committee report. And even and, and a lot of people aren't going to read multiple stories in the New York Times or in the Washington Post that were detailing things that were happening in the weeks before the election or even after, because it was it's a blur even to the reporters reporting those stories. We cannot fully remember all of the things that happened. And watching the hearings has been interesting because we've been texting and slacking one another. Oh my gosh, I can't even remember that we wrote that story, but we did. <laughs> or I remember texting a friend of mine at the Washington Post going, oh yeah, do you remember there was a plan to have the Justice Department file a brief before the Supreme Court? Like, yes, we'd all written the story and yet we'd all forgotten it because so much was happening. So that's been really important. And then to the specific issue of Jeff Clark, I mean, he's really interesting to me, I'll say personally, because when I wrote the story, it was so bizarre that there'd be somebody inside of the Justice Department working against his own colleagues and supervisors to undo the election. And two, because Jeff Clark 
kind of has emerged in the hearings as a real focal point. And when the stories came out in January 2021, we weren't even sure if we were going to run that story on the front page of the Times. It, it was like, <laughs> who is this guy? Doesn't matter. So many crazy things have happened in this administration. Will this be a big deal in the end? And I don't actually remember if we did run the story on the front page. I truly don't remember. So I think that the significance of Clark that's been underscored by the hearings has been fascinating to watch because since writing those stories, I've been getting, you know, calls from different people inside the department telling me that they've thought that Clark seemed like somebody who should be investigated, and we knew that the inspector general was investigating him. So to see those investigatory threads come together at the same time as the committee hearing has been really fascinating, because it very rarely happens like that in this sort of like cinematic fashion. Katie, it's fascinating to hear that you sort of didn't maybe have a full sense of the significance of the Clark story when it broke. I mean, because it does seem like the committee is positioning it as a really crucial moment. I mean, to some extent that has to do with the timing because they had to reschedule that hearing so that it ended up being the last one before the break. But the way that the committee members were framing it was really as kind of this was like the one of the the last efforts by Trump to hold on to power before January 6th itself. And as you say, like there, there is kind of a cinematic element. So right before the hearing started, there was news that Jeffrey Clark's home had been the subject of a search warrant by federal officials. Uh, We now know also that John Eastman's phone was seized. So it does seem like it's not just the committee that's taking this particularly seriously. As you say, it's the federal government as well, seemingly the Justice Department Office of Inspector General. And this is such a wonky point. It's going to get lost and it's fine. But Jeffrey Clark has been under investigation by the Inspector Justice Department Inspector General since January 25th, 2021. So when his home was raided, it was by, you know, the IG has the authority under the IG Act. When I said it was going to be wonky, I promised you wonky. So under <laughs> under the authority of the Inspector General, the IG's office can execute search warrants. It doesn't need to work through the FBI per se. You know, the IG can, can go in on its own and conduct an investigation of any employee or former employee. And what will happen if the IG decides that Jeffrey Clark indeed um, likely committed a crime, it does have to refer that to the Justice Department. But per the regulations, the IG has to refer it to the Attorney General. I find that really interesting because it will be one of the few pieces of the investigations related to January 6th that has to go straight to Garland for him to make some sort of decision as to what to do with it. Everything else is bubbling up in this very frustratingly slow for some people, you know, for the people who think that Donald Trump should be in jail like yesterday. For them, they find it very frustrating that the Justice Department wants to follow all these rules. Career prosecutors look at evidence gathered by the FBI and they build cases and then it goes up to the U.S. attorney who like consults with Lisa Monaco. That's usually the process. In this case, the IG will say, to Merrick Garland, this is what we found. And then it's up to Garland to figure out where to put that information for his people to decide whether or not a former employee should be prosecuted. So Katie, since you mentioned Garland, I want to ask about your thoughts and I actually want to get Scott's thoughts as well about the relationship between the committee's work and DOJ's ongoing investigation. My sense at least was that when the committee first started there was some skepticism, and I certainly shared it, that the committee was going to really meaningfully influence what DOJ was going to do because DOJ can do its own investigations. 
But I will say I have been quite impressed at the methodical and pretty compelling, in my view, nature of the committee making kind of the criminal case for DOJ. And I'm curious, you know, if you think that that there really is meaningful pressure being leveraged, as it were, on, on DOJ uh, as the committee's been going on. So I don't actually think that the committee is going to change the work of the Justice Department or is necessarily uh, – I, I don't think that the committee has given the Justice Department – a group of people or issues to think about that it wasn't already thinking about. And we could see that because in the spring, we knew that the Justice Department was already investigating fake electors. It was already, you know, through the Inspector General's office looking at Jeff Clark. It didn't need the committee to exist to be looking at these issues. What the committee has done, though, is laid out such compelling and easy to understand lines of argument that the public now has more ammunition to talk openly about whether or not the former president should be prosecuted which is something that you saw people who've always hated Trump talking about. You saw it, you know, sort of like on progressive cable news, people talking about it. But now what the committee has seemed to want to do, especially you can hear this in Liz Cheney's statements, it's wanted to convince centrists and Republicans of this as well. Because if the Justice Department were to prosecute, you know, Mark Meadows, much less Trump, any figure, popular figure within the Republican Party, it is really difficult suddenly to separate that from politics. It becomes incredibly hard, even if Merrick Garland is very sincere when he says, we just followed the facts and the law and this is where it took us. The real politic of it all is that you are using the Justice Department to prosecute possibly the most popular leader of one of our two major political parties. And that is something that you do need the public to have an understanding of, an understanding of the facts and an understanding of a narrative that leads to prosecution that's easy to understand because this is such a sensitive thing to do. I don't think that people take seriously how sensitive it would be to actually prosecute somebody like Donald Trump, what implications it would have for the future. And maybe part of that is because of of Mueller and all the expectation that's built up around Mueller and suddenly for, you know, Through the course of that, the American public felt that prosecuting a president was just something you do every day. It's not. And if you look at the Constitution, the Constitution is created in order to prevent that at all costs. So, or at least one reading of the Constitution is it's created to prevent such a thing at all costs. So I think that what the committee is doing is not necessarily pressuring the Justice Department, but actually trying to lay the groundwork publicly for there to be acceptance of something as radical as the Justice Department prosecuting a White House chief of staff or even a former president. That's a really interesting reframing and I think makes a lot more sense than the way that I've heard it talked about in terms of, as you say, kind of like the committee presenting evidence that the Justice Department presumably already had. <laughs> and it's, and I think also speaks to what the committee can do as a committee of Congress, which is, you know, a constitutional but explicitly political branch of government rather than the Justice Department, which cannot and should not be sort of playing in those waters. I mean, I guess if I want to play devil's advocate, the counter argument, I suppose, would be by making this argument that Trump should be prosecuted, that he should be prosecuted because his actions are so severe that they merit it, that it is necessarily entering politics into that consideration and that that might make DOJ shy away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I I think that's a good devil's argument, Quinta. I mean, I do think the response to that is, right, that this is going to be political no matter what. And I would agree with that for the record. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. <laughs> and one interesting thing that I've, I've found is I've just been surprised that the committee 
like forget as a kind of quasi investigative body, just like committee as a legislative political body seems to be making some political effect on Trump's standing, right? Which has gone down in polls taken since the January 6th committee got started. And and particularly interesting, I think, is is some reporting from Politico that people like DeSantis, who is a very Trumpy figure, um, but is not himself a loyal Trump ally, really, and who clearly wants to be the next uh, Republican presidential nominee, is kind of delighted with what's going on. Because, you know, best case scenario is Trump gets indicted, in which case, you know, he almost certainly can't run or it just won't kind of work. Or at the very least, Trump is sufficiently damaged that the Trumpy lane is now open for DeSantis. So, I mean, I, I do I do wonder if maybe as a political matter, this committee is actually having a surprisingly real effect. And we'll see if that lasts, obviously. And that's in part because Kevin McCarthy made such a miscalculation at the outset. And, you know, if he had said Republicans are going to fully participate in this committee, the hearings would look very different, right? The hearings would be you would have Cheney and Thompson and maybe somebody else presenting a really compelling line, a really compelling narrative line. But then you would have somebody else on the committee proffering a minority view that would then undermine everything that the panel had just laid out. And so it wouldn't have been as convincing an argument for the American people. And I think that that is something that Republicans are thinking about long and hard because yes, you're right. This helps DeSantis. It helps other people who are anti-Trump. And I think that right now the conservative movement is split as to whether or not that's a good idea. Katie, I, I love, I think I, you, you put it so politely, proffering a minority view, when what you really, I think, mean is listening to Jim Jordan rant like a lunatic and completely disrupt your basic committee functioning. But yeah, we can call it proffering a minority view. That, that's fair. We're a polite crowd here. Yes, something like that, yes. It strikes me, I think this is the two threads of the impact here about, you know, facilitating making space for a potential criminal prosecution on the political side and the potentially undermining the Trump brand in the Republican circles, they have like an interesting relationship to each other, right? Because part of the reason why you have people more willing to stonewall, less willing to cooperate um, with investigations is most likely in part because they see their political futures being with kind of the Trump community. So I wonder whether there's a little bit of a positive feedback loop. The more you see people like DeSantis painting a picture that says, well, look, Trump's not necessarily going to be the leader of this party moving forward and people in his orbit aren't going to be at the center of power they may think they are. I wonder if that's going to change the calculus for people who haven't been quite as forthcoming or willing to say, oh, I don't agree 100% with what happened, or we made some mistakes and I'm willing to talk about it now moving forward, particularly if the Justice Department starts moving forward with criminal prosecutions of people around Trump, um, which seems like the next step, right? That's what how Garland has described building an investigation you build from the outside in, and they still haven't really started moving into those inner circles with actual legal action yet, but we know the investigation is there. So I'm very curious to see what that what that next step looks like. Yeah, I'm going to blame the committee for my brain being so fried that I have no transition here. Um, I guess we could do from one one branch of government to the other. You can't blame them every week, Quinta. And, the, and yet it's a <laughs> consistent transition absence. I can I can blame the Supreme Court too. They the Supremes, <laughs> folks. You may have heard they've been active. It's June. Things are hopping over there on One First Street. Uh, so the first decision that we're going to talk about today is uh, the Bruin decision, uh, which has to do 
with the Second Amendment and gun rights. This is a real doozy of a decision, less, I think, for the immediate effect that it will have on gun laws and more for the sort of methodological approach that the majority uh, in an opinion written by uh, the methodologically radical Justice Thomas is establishing. So what Bruin essentially says is it's extending the court's previous ruling under D.C. v. Heller that uh, the Second Amendment protects an individual right to firearms, now saying not only do you have that right inside the home, you also have that right to bear firearms for self-defense outside the home. And importantly, Thomas gets there by saying the test that we establish under Heller, which we can talk about in, in more detail, that is kaput, it is gone, or excuse me, the, the test that appeals courts establish after Heller, that is kaput, it is gone. What we're going to do now is say, if there's a gun law, uh, does it affect Second Amendment rights? If it does, is that law supported by by history? Is it consistent with sort of historical governance of gun rights? And, and this is important because it essentially makes this, I've seen it referred to as a history-only test. Um, it means that we're going to have to be doing an enormous amount of digging through what I think is fair to say is uh, murky historical record in deciding what firearms laws are and aren't allowed. And so that has an enormous effect, not only in that it upends essentially all of the jurisprudence that was developed post-Heller, but it also means that we're now going to have to be doing a lot of law office history rooting around and and records and figuring out what is and is not kosher. So, Alan, let me turn it over to you. What what do you make of Bruin? What does it sort of portend about the future of how we think about the Second Amendment? I think your framing was was exactly right, which is that the short term, obviously, it invalidates some states' licensing schemes, but it's really, I think, important effect is in the long term, honestly, not just for, for Second Amendment issues, but I think generally constitutional issues, right? I think it kind of contrasts in this way with the Dobbs ruling, which has an enormous, obviously, kind of well, short term in the sense of an enormous kind of immediate policy implication with regard to abortion, but I think methodologically is, I think, less disruptive than something like Bruin is. Uh, and, and I think that the reason is, and this is like really important to like appreciate, um, there's no such thing as quote unquote history. Like there's not some objective historical record and you read it and you know exactly what people were saying. And this is for a whole host of reasons, right? First, just as an empirical evidentiary matter, you never know if you have the full record. I mean, people academics spend their entire lives in dusty archives, you know, studying one little bit about one little town in, you know, Southwestern whatever. And it takes them a whole career to do that, right? So just trying to do rigorous historical analysis is A, really, really hard, not something that either the justices or to be honest, their law clerks or the litigators who are going to be arguing in front of them are going to be very good at. You know, second, methodologically, it's often not even clear what it is you're looking for, right? So there are all these kind of very inside baseball, really interesting, but technical debates about, well, are you looking for original meaning? Are you looking for original public understanding? Whose public understanding should count? These are not questions that themselves have historically verifiable answers. They're themselves kind of value-laden theoretical judgments. And then third is you can't get away from the need to make analogies and what's sometimes called translation from the historical context to the current context, which is something that, to his credit, Justice Thomas admits in the opinion, that he kind of waves it away by saying, well, lawyers always have to make analogies. We're good at that. Like, okay, but like, if you have to make analogies, then you're losing a lot of the quote-unquote objectivity of what historical analysis theoretically gets you. Because 
you know, if you don't have an exact analog to the law in front of you, you're going to have to say, well, it's like this thing historically, or it's not like this thing historically. But that's, again, not an inquiry that's bounded by any sort of quote unquote objective historical analysis. I mean, I think the broader issue is that we are seeing, you know, as we are seeing in many ways with respect to this term, which has taken a very conservative turn, the kind of conservative dog has caught the car in terms of constitutional analysis. And it turns out that it's a lot easier to advocate for originalism when you're in the minority and you're criticizing um, the kind of dominant approach than when you are the majority and you have to engage in, and let's be honest here, policymaking, which is what the Supreme Court is doing, not all the time, but certainly in these hugely high stakes constitutional uh, debates where they are essentially acting as a super legislature. And, you know, I think what we're going to see is, you know, just as the Warren court started off strong and then got into backlash because a lot of Americans didn't agree with their particular moral reading of the constitution. I think we're going to see this with originalism. It's going to have just as many moral predicates, albeit less explicitly stated. And as the Supreme court essentially kind of makes up the history as it will need to, it's going to start annoying people. And, you know, we're going to have the same backlash against originalism in five, 10 years that we had against the Warren courts, you know, moral reading in the you know late 60s and 70s. Yeah, and I do want to make sure that we, you know, take care to frame this not just as a question about, you know, the the court and constitutional methodology and interpretation but also in context of sort of broader questions of law enforcement and, and national security. I mean, I think that Bruin right now is also important for two other reasons. One is we're in the middle of a conversation about extremism as it relates to gun violence in the United States. Obviously, um, the Buffalo shooting is still very recent in memory. And so despite Justice Alito's sort of, frankly, snide comment that Buffalo uh, would not have been affected by the the New York law that was at issue here in the Bruin decision. I do think that there is kind of an interesting question about with a expanded Second Amendment, with sort of rethinking Second Amendment jurisprudence, what that might mean for efforts to limit extremist violence. And then also there's the question of what law enforcement, um, what role federal law enforcement, particularly the Justice Department, which released a statement after the decision saying that uh, they're committed to cutting down on, on gun violence, what role that leaves for for them. So Katie, I do want to ask you about that. But before that, um, I want to give Scott a chance to jump in. Well, you know, I'll say I think those are, are very good questions and the right way to, to frame this. And, you know, Katie, I'd welcome your thoughts on that as well. Uh, the only thing I would add to what Alan laid out about this constitutional method question is, it's just an interesting context to see this kind of apex of a conservative sort of legal movement that one of its driving motivators in the statutory context was a strong critique of purposivism, sort of statutory interpretation that leaned heavily on legislative history, precisely because it's so malleable. Uh, there are so many ways you can read legislative history. And you compare that to this particular approach that takes this deep historical dive of a, of a historical practice record that's so much broader, more open-ended than a statutory statutory record is for a statute, and then is moving towards a view of saying, no, in fact, like we can use all this history and pull it in and interpret it through different lenses to reach an outcome. The real answer is, is that you actually have wildly different outcomes depending upon your methodology. Um, and you see this here in the Kavanaugh-Roberts concurrence and the Barrett concurrence, uh, where you see these all these different approaches really acknowledging all these just justices acknowledging that we could reach different outcomes. And in some ways they strongly suggest would reach different outcomes in different cases, depending on their different reads of the history and their different views of methodology. And so what does that actually do for the lower courts? Because the fact that you got six justices 
four justices joining Thomas's opinion. I think it was four finally, was it was it the final count? Uh, or six total, excuse me, and four kind of without further commentary. You know, what does that mean in terms of that methodology for lower courts that are interpreting this in the first place? I kind of suspect we're going to keep getting kind of balkanized view in the lower courts and that then we'll see maybe they'll come to some consensus on a view, maybe not. But it's going to look a lot different than just what this opinion has because this opinion just doesn't give a clear enough picture to really determine the outcome in a lot of cases, particularly with restrictions that aren't structured exactly like this one. I think that's true. And what's interesting is what Thomas has done in this decision and then in the decision around Dobbs is it almost feels like he's saying to, you know, his former clerks and other people in the lower courts who he has close relationships with, these are my arguments. Think about them carefully because it's up to you to percolate and create the, you know, the the intellectual underpinnings for whatever it is that's going to come to us, the Supreme Court. So he it does feel like he's trying to influence those lower courts. I thought that it was really interesting that Alan brought up the Warren court, because if you see what happened in the wake, yes, there, it, there was a backlash and conservatives understood that they needed to work on the other branches of government to push back on what had just happened at the Supreme Court level. So I am very curious to see whether or not Democrats or progressives take away that same lesson and embark on their own 10, 20, 30 year project of winning state houses, state legislatures winning at the house level and you know creating local laws as much as possible they work within the framework of whatever the supreme court has created to to push back and i think that that's the bigger question because i don't think this idea of impeaching justices removing people from the bench is in any way probable or possible it really is a matter of whether or not those other two pieces of the government can be those other levers can be pulled and be pulled effectively yeah and and i think that's a helpful point and then can just to bring it then back to the law enforcement question you know one thing i do wonder about is and again i mean i have i think it's clear my big problems with this decision and all the way back to the original the original sin as it were of reading the well-regulated militia clause out of the Second Amendment, which is essentially what, what I think Heller does. I, I do wonder, though, like what the practical effects of these sorts of decisions are, because really, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't think it's the court that is fundamentally in the way of gun control. It's really, I think, the political process that is in the way of gun control. And, and I do think that that liberals and people who are not into guns, and I'm one of those people, sometimes have this idea that like, if only the, we got the Second Amendment interpreted in a better way or even repealed, we could do what like Australia did or something or England did and just ban guns. But like, that's not going to happen here. So, you know, in a sense, within the space of what's politically possible, is the Supreme Court really the thing that is limiting, you know, passing, you know, gun safety legislation? And of course, we haven't even mentioned the fact that you know, I think the day the Bruin was was announced, um, Congress passed the first piece of guns legislation in 30 years, which is kind of an interesting point, maybe something, you know, worth, worth thinking about. But, but really, I, I think at the end of the day, it's really the political process, um, not, I think, the judicial process that is in, that is getting in the way of the specific policy issue of gun safety, which is why for me, Bruin's kind of methodological craziness um, is more disturbing than the specific holding uh, in, in the case. Well, it's so interesting you talk about law enforcement because after, I believe it was after Uvalde, you saw different policing groups, whether it's IACP or others, I think major city chiefs 
don't quote me on that one though, come out with a letter saying we will do anything to work on rational solutions to the epidemic of gun violence. Because to Quinta's earlier point, every citizen walking around in public armed is a nightmare for police. It is possibly the worst thing they could face in their day-to-day -day jobs. Already you see police officers having to be cautious of going to make certain kinds of calls, especially around domestic violence, etc., where there's just like a really high proportion of officers being involved in shootings and injuries. Now imagine that going to respond to a disturbance at a local bar, knowing that everybody in that bar could have a gun. How much more dangerous is that? So you kind of see traditional groups that have been outside of this issue or not wanting to weigh in, starting to become in quiet ways more vocal. And they have a lot of pull with politicians, like law enforcement officers. Politicians pay a lot of attention to law enforcement officers because if streets are awash in violence, these people do not get reelected. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I think, I think that's totally right. And, but I, and so I think it's hard. I don't want to go quite so far as to say I don't think this opinion actually has a major impact for gun safety because I think it does, right? It puts a, an unavoidable chink in the armor of potentially protecting guns gun safety and that now there's a guaranteed right getting outside the home carrying a firearm for a lot of people right if you've got you you've got a presumption of saying you know even if you have any self-defense concerns and there aren't other reasonable regulatory reasons that this, the government has imposed on you there's a presumption you've got this sort of right and that's significant because ultimately like the majority of people probably aren't going to fall in any sort of re reasonable regulatory net and so it means you're not going to you're going to have a situation kind of like katie's describing where a lot more people could potentially have guns out there and it's not clear states can really restrict that but there is still lots of regulatory space here this opinion leaves kavanaugh and roberts are particularly clear about that and it pushes us in this direction that we've talked about on the show before which is that it's thinking about guns not as a restrictive or prohibition, but as a shades of gray regulation saying, OK, well, here, what can we impose on this? We can impose safety requirements in terms of how you handle the firearm. You can impose licensing and safety training that's obligatory. There's a lot of talk about insurance potentially being a requirement. All these seem very, very constitutionally defendable under the schema. And Roberts and Kavanaugh almost come out and say we would be fine with this. And it's something that we're seeing more serious discussion about, um, both in the gun rights movement and I think even a little more openness to it uh, among conservatives, certainly in the aftermath of Evaldi, although we'll see if that you know continues as as the memory of that horrible event begins to fade a little bit, political memory, I should say, not actual memory. 
But, you know, I think that's pointing in the new direction we're going to see for this gun control fight. That's one that's a better constitutional terrain for gun safety advocates. And it's just going to be a big laboratory of experimentation saying, well, what is the combination of methods that actually does the right, does the impact on the policy grounds to get safer? And then it's going to have to come back to the courts and we'll see how it does there. But I think, you know, there's reason to be optimistic. A lot of those will still get upheld, even if unavoidably this does change one of those fundamental questions underlying it in a way that many people anticipated but hadn't actually been in the law until now. Well, while we are in the process of talking about the Supreme Court, we do need to acknowledge the other major Supreme Court decision that came down last week, and that is the Dobbs decision, which overruled Roe v. Wade and has introduced a major, major change into the legal landscape for, of course, American women, in a lot of ways, American men as well, and many other American citizens, uh, and changed the fundamental constitutional rights landscape. But for our purposes here, you know, one issue that's particularly within lawfare's Alley and Lane, it's something we've been doing a lot of talking about, and some of our colleagues have been doing some fantastic writing about, is this question about what is going to happen in a digital surveillance space, where we are now, unlike in the pre-row landscape, in, in an era where you have apps and phones that many people use to track their health, to collect their health information, and that companies providing them use to collect a range of information or to track location or to collect metadata that allows people to do incredibly specific types of marketing, including about pregnancy and health conditions and things like that. I will say, you know, one of the most shocking things my wife and I found out we were expecting was that she immediately started being bombarded with ads for baby gear. Even though we had not told anyone that we were pregnant yet, we had found out like a week earlier and just started getting all these ads for things that we had never even thought about needing because it was so early in the process because something we did triggered the algorithm that said, oh yeah, this, these people are expecting. And you could see that turned a lot of nefarious ways by state authorities who some of whom in some states seem very insistent on not only restricting abortion within the state to, as a provision of a, of a medical service, but restricting their citizens from being able to get abortions potentially outside of their state or through other avenues such as uh, you know, mail-in abortion drugs, which are systems set up to try and provide at a greater scale now. So all of these digital surveillance questions really present really challenging policy questions that are fundamentally new to this post-Row, post-Dobbs landscape and that weren't on the table in the 1970s, um, although some of them do have some interesting kind of legal parallels from that era. Quinta, why don't I start with you on this one? You know, we've saw a really interesting piece written by our colleague, Stephanie Pell, and a co-author whose name's escaping at the moment, kind of going through the the some of the landscape in the space and making the argument that really a lot of our conventional Fourth Amendment privacy protections are substantially diminished in a way that could be a real problem for women in this new era. You spend a lot of time thinking about how these companies interact around data and privacy in a lot of other contexts. Does that ring true to you? And where do you see the big fault lines, big questions arising now? Yeah. So first off, I'll just recommend that everyone take a look at that Lawfare piece, which we'll link in the show notes. It's by, uh, as you said, Scott, our colleague Stephanie Powell and her co-author, uh, Jillian Dellinger, called The Impotence of the Fourth Amendment in a Post-Roe World. I mean, I think it's it's the concern is absolutely on the money. And I think that you see how present that anxiety is. Um, I was on social media after the Dobbs decision was released, and there was just a flood of people who were 
concerned about potential criminalization saying, delete your period tracker app, you know, delete this data. Of course, the problem is that, as, as many tech journalists pointed out, deleting the app doesn't necessarily get rid of the data. And as uh, Stephanie and Jalyn point out in their piece, it's not just, you know, this question of if you have period tracking data in an app, it's also a question of, does your phone show that you, you know, went to a doctor's office or or perhaps cross state lines if we're in a world where uh, states are criminalizing going out of state to receive an abortion as well, which has been proposed as a possibility, I think constitutionally questionable, but but we'll see. So it's really, you know, just a, a reminder of the unbelievable amount of data that we all carry with us and how that data can be used by law enforcement to figure out exactly where you are and and what you're doing. And I think what one of the points that the piece makes when it comes to the Fourth Amendment issue is, of course, under recent rulings by the Supreme Court in in Riley v. California and Carpenter v. U.S., uh, the court has held that there are warrant requirements under the Fourth Amendment for access to certain non-content data from coming from your phone. The problem is that doesn't help you if, you know, you want to protect against this and law enforcement can show probable cause and receive a warrant, which they may well be able to do if, again, we're in situations where that it is criminalized to, to access abortion care. So I think it is easy to say, you know, this is sort of hyperventilating and we're, we're going too far in saying this, but it does seem to be a very live concern. I will also say that there's been a lot of sort of, frankly, I think, unfortunate bloviating from tech companies about this kind of thing. Um, there was some reporting on a period tracking app that I think is called Stardust um, that was making a lot of claims about how you know it was keeping your data safe and so on, and saying that uh, it was encrypting the data end to end, which I don't even know what that means when it comes to like you entering data into an app as opposed to communication between you and another person. Alan, I'd, maybe you can speak to that, but that that seemed to me like just sort of using tech blather to make people feel like their data might be more secure than it it actually is. So I think, you know, all this is a long way of seeing that there's an unbelievable amount of uncertainty and uh, data and technology that people previously felt secure in using is now potentially exposing them to criminal and civil liability. Yeah, so just to respond to a couple of things that, that Quintus said. So, you know, with respect to the question of tech company uh, blather, I, I agree, a lot of this is blather, right? I mean, at the end of the day, tech companies are companies and they are bound by the law. And if abortion is not a constitutional right, right, as of a few days ago, which means that states can criminalize it. And if they criminalize it, it's a crime, right? There's no there's no exception to cooperating with an otherwise valid law enforcement request or a warrant because you, the technology company, either have a personal, you know, the, 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 the people who run the tech company either don't like the law or because they think their customers don't like the law. You're going to have to hand over the data. That's what you have to do. Now, you know, in in defense of the tech companies, I mean, there are things that they can do to make law enforcement's job harder. So, you know, with respect to this question of, well, you know, what if a period tracker, let's say, decides to end-to-end encrypt your data? I mean, they can do that in the sense that they can design their software either to only hold the data on your device locally, or what is more likely, since all this is cloud-backed up, to do so in a way that only you, the user, can access that data by entering your password. If that is the case, 
and there's no backup. There's no, oops, I forgot my password link. Uh, there's no, the company reading, you know, looking at the data to sell to a data broker so that you get the, you know, <clears throat> Amazon advertisement for something, <clears throat> you know, Scott, you mentioned that happened to you and your, your wife that, that happened to us as, as well. Right. Um, I think it happens to everyone at this point. Then they, then they can do that. You know, a, a, a example of this is in the context of, let's say, communication services is, you know, when WhatsApp, for example, moved to encrypt all of its data, um, all the communications, that made it very difficult for law enforcement to access that communications, which, you know, if you think that's good or bad, depends on what you, if you think the law enforcement should have a valid reason to look at those communications. You know, so there are ways that companies can do this, but it's very hard, just given the economics of all of this, to simultaneously provide a service that attracts enough people that you can monetize it, which is, after all, how companies work, but at the same time, then, then not create troves of data that are then accessible one way or the other to you know, law enforcement. You know, I think that the question of the Fourth Amendment is a really interesting one. Quinta, you brought up Carpenter, and that is, of course, like the really interesting question here, because Carpenter is the one, is the case that cuts back dramatically on the third party doctrine, which is the doctrine that eliminated Fourth Amendment protections for data that you disclose to other parties. The question is, how will Carpenter apply to this kind of information? Um, you know, one can make an argument that period or pregnancy tracking software is not like just having a cell phone. It's not so important to daily life that it should get Fourth Amendment protections. On the other hand, Carpenter also talks about the sensitivity of the data. And I, I, I have to think that especially, right, in a post-Roe world, information about pregnancy is even more sensitive potentially than information about than about location. So, you know, I again I I wouldn't I wouldn't say the Fourth Amendment is kind of totally worthless um after after this, uh, but uh it's super, super unclear. And I mean if I if I was pregnant or and certainly if I lived in a anti-abortion state, I would think real hard about downloading some period or pregnancy tracker uh from the app store. I think though that whether or not you're using a period tracker or an app specifically designed to look at whether or not to look at fertility and to look at your period. We, we've seen time and again that first with companies like Palantir, and now I think it's a much more common practice, which is why Palantir seems maybe a little bit less innovative than it was a decade ago, that law enforcement can take lots and lots and lots of inputs and come to conclusions about and even predict quote unquote criminal behavior, basically predict behavior in general and with a special focus on things that violate statute. So you don't necessarily need a period tracking app to put together a lot of data about you, your search history, where you go, where you went to school, who your friends are, your social network, your social graph, who you've met, who you've connected with on apps like LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram. These are all things that law enforcement has been using to piece together profiles of people. For example, people who are suspected of, of terrorism, people who are suspects in all sorts of cases. And now with Roe, Having an abortion is another criminal statute like any other in certain states, and law enforcement can use this power. So I, I think that this is just underscoring, again, how much of our lives have been given over to law enforcement, whether we like it or not. And also it highlights, again, that a lot of tech companies, no matter the app, they make money on subscriptions, they make money on advertising, online advertising, but they also make money on back-end sales of data. So... Once they sell that data, they do not control or know how it's being used or by whom. And oftentimes it is by law enforcement. I have a question here just about 
sort of law enforcement capability? Because I'm realizing, you know, when when we talk about these kinds of investigations, um, Katie, I imagine in your work certainly and in mine and Eleanor would have mentioned yours as well, we're often thinking about federal investigations and the federal government, you know, the FBI just has kind of a lot more firepower when it comes to putting together the digital pieces for these kinds of things that so you know part of what we're thinking about here under the current administration and given the the current state of the law in which abortion is not criminalized on a federal level um, would come down to state level investigations and particularly state level investigations sometimes across state lines you run into all kind of weird uh, federalism questions now that there's a handful of states in the the Northwest that are saying that they won't cooperate with any investigations from other states uh, into abortions. I mean, to what extent might the sort of surveillance, like dragnet, I guess, to, to use a dramatic term, be mitigated by the more limited capabilities of state investigatory agencies. Is that, Alan, am I totally barking up the wrong tree here? I I don't think you're barking up the wrong tree. And I do think that there is some kind of, there might be, I don't want to say there is, there might be some sort of built-in mitigation, but I think it's less about the resources of state agencies. You know, look, it's true that the county sheriff in somewhere in Nebraska probably isn't going to have the resources to do this, but like if Texas wants to do, I mean, Texas is, you know, as I like to keep reminding the rest of us, they're basically a country. Same with Florida, right? Same with a lot of these, you know, almost basically every state, even the smaller ones. I, I think to the extent that there's a, a mitigator, I wonder if it's ironically the particularly intrusive nature of doing this sort of dragnet, you know, I always think of it as like a Chinese social credit style uh, surveillance of people to find out based on their apps and their browsing history, whether they're pregnant and then to cross-reference that with whether they've gone out of state or gotten, you know, a, a, a abortion pill or something like that. You know, obviously, if you're an abortion, if you're a believer in, in abortion rights, all of this is hugely intrusive. But I also wanted to just at a kind of practical political level, I think it's one thing for a state to say, look, we will not allow an abortion clinic to operate we will punish providers of abortion, right? I think it's another thing for them to say, and also we will essentially create an unbelievably intrusive surveillance apparatus to go after, you know, women and the demographics of which will be poor women, women of color, et cetera, et cetera, right? To you know, get into their smartphone and put them in jail for that. Now, they might do that, right? Like at this point, I'm totally incapable of doing any sort of prediction, but that does seem to me something that has some real downsides, uh, not just for people who want abortions, but for, you know, extreme anti-abortion people who want to chase this down to the last uh, degree. But we'll see. You know, I'll say the one constraint on all of this that I feel like does not get discussed enough, and I don't think we've touched on this conversation, is potential federal statute, right? Congress could restrict the ability for these companies to share these data by prohibiting it or restrict a variety of uses of this sort of data. It's pretty squarely product of interstate commerce. It seems clearly within the regulatory authority. And I'm kind of surprised and, and curious to see what sort of proposals we see coming forward in the next few months as this, what might be the last democratically controlled Congress for at least a couple of years, wrestles with these issues. Uh, you know, we see a lot of talk about 
people trying to pursue a federal guarantee of a right to abortion. That seems like it's a mostly symbolic measure. It doesn't clear, pretty clearly doesn't have the votes in the Senate. But I am curious whether these other measures might to say restrictions like this, particularly when you have Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski, and a few other folks. And I and I wonder if you are Democrats who want to put it forward, if this wouldn't be a fruitful thing to run against if this is shot down by a Republican-led filibuster in the Senate, which just seems like the way that it would die if it's not able to move forward. And, you know, I think that is a terrain we're going to see a lot of these things fought over in the post-road terrain is the this idea about how the, uh, you know, different abortion restrictions are being enforced, the tools are made available to them. And I curious to see, and frankly, we'll be surprised if we don't see Democrats in Congress beginning to push against that, because it seems like both a political opportunity and potentially a legal opportunity to solve this. I mean, the votes would be very slim. I'm not sure you would actually get there, but it seems like a debate that wouldn't hurt you know, Democrats to have, along with maybe debates about, you know, statutory rights to contraception and other, you know, substantive due process rights that some people worry are threatened by Dobbs. That all seems like a debate that has a lot more potential fruit at the end, and frankly, is politically more favorable than one over a right to abortion that, again, just clearly the votes aren't there. But, you know, I'm curious to see where where that goes exactly. I mean, I will say building on that, I have seen privacy scholars make the argument that general data privacy legislation would help mitigate some of these concerns if they are something that members of Congress are concerned about. Maybe, but the problem, of course, is that to the extent that they mitigate concerns, right? Because remember, right, this is, I think, something really important. If you are pro-choice, right, you view this, right, as states trying to criminalize something that was up until recently a right. If you are not pro-choice, you view this as states using the criminal law for the most important purpose the criminal law can be used for, right? The protection of life. So the, the problem, politically speaking, is that to the extent that either Democrats want to put forward special carve-outs or special protections for this kind of data, or they want to write the general data laws to provide protection for this data, the implication right, is that if you're a pro-life person, you are agreeing to something that undercuts what you've been fighting for for 50 years. Because of course, if you believe that abortion is a crime, you should criminalize it. That's kind of the whole point. And so because I am skeptical, right, that you can get 10 justices for this, uh, sorry, 10, my apologies, 10 senators for this. You see, I can't even if, tell- If only we could get 10 justices, Alan. I can't Alan. even tell the difference at this point between senators and justices. What a good Freudian thing, right? Uh, I'm skeptical <laughs> you can get 10 senators for this to get the supermajority threshold. I'm skeptical that you can get Manchin and uh, you know Cinema to, to end the filibuster over this. I think what's going to happen is what tends to happen um, and what I think a lot of pro-choice Democrats are very angry at their leadership for, which is that there's going to be a bunch of floor speeches. There's going to be a ton of fundraising about this and nothing's going to happen. Well, for better verse, we are going to have to leave the conversation there as we are almost out of time. But of course, this would not be rational security if we did not give you some object lessons to think about over the week ahead. Katie, I know we are nearly at the end of your time with us. So I'm going to hand it over to you first to share our first object lesson and we'll circle back to the rest of us. So please, Katie, what do you have for us? This, and this is something that I have discovered that is bringing some delight to me. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. I have been listening to the audiobook version, the audible version of Anne of Green Gables, narrated by Rachel McAdams. I will say she has done an extraordinary job of embodying not only Anne Shirley, 
but Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert and Mrs. Rachel Lind. It is extraordinary what she's able to do. Her Gilbert Blythe is quite good. I know that I can't nominate Rachel McAdam for an Oscar for her performance in the audible version of Anne of Green Gables, in part because it's not a film, but I think she's proving to be one of the most talented voice actresses of her generation. I think she's breathed new life into one of the greatest books of all time, and I think that if you are looking for something to listen to, specifically while knitting many of the things that Marilla knits in the book, tea cozies, blankets, what have you, this is exactly what you should be doing with your summer. That is a wonderful suggestion. Uh, I will say, I if you have not had the experience, if you are an Anne of Green Gables fan, I went on vacation to Prince Edward Island a few years ago, and it is like an Anne of Green Gables theme park over there. It they is, are so into it. It is. And like it's people wild. in Japan love Anne of Green Gables so much. There's like a sister city between, um, you know, Avonlea and this town Amazing. in Japan. And so when I also went to the Anne of Green Gables home site, obviously, <laughs> everyone assumed I was Japanese. And they kept saying to me as I would walk into restaurants, diners, like gift card shops, are you looking for the Anne of Green Gables homestead site? And I would be like, what the fuck? But I mean, obviously the answer was yes. And then when I got there, it was like closed down for, oh. because it was the off season because I was there with a friend. But this was, you know, this was the 90s. Things were different. We just thought, it. We thought that sounds like a one long, weird microaggression. What could it, what could it hurt? To just go in. Like, what could it hurt? What could it possibly hurt? Just just walk in, check it out. And we did. And it hurt nothing. We got to see the pantry where, like, the mouse drowns in the, in the pudding sauce. We got to kind of see it all until the, until the dudes were working to do repairs and restorations on the house showed up. And then oh. we had to run as fast as I've ever run in my life. <laughs> from the Anne of Green Gables house to the Volvo that my friend owned, which is not a very good getaway car. It takes a really long time to start. It's really problematic. And I don't drive know what away. the statute of limitations is on uh, not breaking and entering in Prince Edward Island. You're I was really going to say extradition to Prince Edward does, Island. Does, does the yeah. New York Times know what a, what a felonious reporter they have on, <laughs> on staff? We took nothing. We did. We took nothing. Except I, I memories. <laughs> I love it. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for joining us. Alan, what do you have for us this week? Yes, I also have an audiobook, and it is also 19th century themed. So I am currently listening to The Oregon Trail, A New American Journey by uh, Rinker Buck, uh, who in, I think, the early 2010s, with his brother, decided to travel the Oregon Trail uh, you know, from Missouri to Oregon in a covered wagon with a bunch of mules. <laughs> What's interesting is I'm about halfway through the book. Um, when I think of the Oregon Trail, because I'm 36, I immediately think of the video game Oregon Trail. Yeah, did he die of dysentery? Well, exactly. Poor Timmy, when they crossed the, the ford or they forded the crossing or whatever. Did he shoot 10,000 um, buffalo on his <laughs> way? Way God, more I, than you need for meat? <laughs> that felt I, very I used unhealthy. To do, I used that to that do that. I used to do that, and I think back, like what a sociopath twelve-year-old Alan must have been. Um, well, very historically appropriate because that's what actually happened that on this what actually happened. What, what I find very so it's a wonderful book. It's very charming. You learn a lot about history. You learn a lot about how covered wagons work, which is interesting. What I find very amusing, though, is that so you know I, I'm in my 30s. This author is in his 60s, and so his connection to the Oregon Trail is very different than my connection, which is entirely through the video game. And his connection is like 
riding horses in the 1950s when he grew up. And it's just very funny. I keep waiting for the video game to appear, but I'm not sure it's going to. But either way, it's a wonderful book, a wonderful read, a wonderful listen. So I highly recommend it. The Oregon Trail by Rinker Buck. Wonderful. And Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I have uh, neither an audiobook nor anything having to do with the 19th century. It is a strange little uh, incident in the life of one Rudy Giuliani. Uh, so listeners may have seen a, a grocery store worker in uh, Staten Island came up behind Mr. Giuliani the other day, slapped him on the back and said, what's up, scumbag? <laughs> not for the first which, time, not for the last time, Mayor Giuliani. At which point he was charged with second degree assault. And yeah, Giuliani went on his right. podcast saying that uh, he had been hit. He was in substantial pain. He had been caused to stumble forward, almost fall. Uh, the charge was later downgraded to a third degree assault, third degree menacing, and second degree harassment after the video evidence from the security footage showed that he just patted him on the back. <laughs> Um, and Giuliani said at one point, uh, this little punk, this is in a news conference, this little punk isn't going to hurt me. The mafia threatened to kill me twice. So there you go. Just a little moment of Zen. Uh, what's it. up scumbag, I think is really an iconic statement for our current moment. From prosecuting the mafia to being part of the mafia. <laughs> We, he has to understand this is going to happen to him everywhere he goes now. <laughs> like, there's no avoiding it. Uh, but we will see. We will see. I'm I will sorry. say I would buy a T-shirt that had "What's Up, Scumbag." Oh, absolutely! It. It's a great slogan. Available. This guy's going to be selling them. Obviously, he's got to pay for his legal fees. Well, for my object lesson this week, uh, I have a, a somewhat nerdy and serious one, um, but one I found very illuminating and interesting the last few days. As we've been talking about this post-Dodd landscape, it raises a whole lot of very complicated and interesting and serious legal questions on a variety of fronts, many of which not related to the substantive constitutional rights around abortion, uh, but related to a variety of jurisdictional and federalism issues. Um, that's some of what you heard us just talk about in our last topic, but they go way further than that about, you know, how can states, to what extent can states begin to try and regulate the conduct of their citizens traveling interstate, something Justice Kavanaugh talked about briefly in his concurrence. It, it is a really fascinating set of legal issues that are very important. And frankly, I think probably, again, the terrain of what the legal landscape around this issue that's going to look like at the kind of federal constitutional uh, level, certainly federal jurisdictional level for the next couple of years. And I stumbled upon, courtesy of the Volokh Conspiracy, uh, a phenomenal article does a great job digging into it by three scholars I was not familiar with before that's coming forth in the Columbia Law Review. And you can get an advanced copy on SSRN now. So it's called The New Abortion Battleground by David Cohen, Greer Donnelly, and Rachel Rebouchet. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Rachel. Um, it is just a phenomenally useful guide to the very complicated questions that we are all going to be living with for the next several years, honestly, probably, and is a very interesting, if sobering read. Uh, so I cannot recommend it enough if you're trying to make sense about what comes next after Dobbs. Well, folks, for better or for worse, that is, brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebearer, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you are at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other fantastic podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Ian Enright of Good Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. 
On behalf of my co-host, Quinta and Alan, and our special guest, Katie Benner, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.